Well, good morning, church. How are we doing today? Uh, I just want to say that it is, uh, it is my joy this morning, uh, as I was able to sit here in the front, I don't get to sit here in the front often and just hear all of you sing so loudly. It is just beautiful, and as your worship pastor, that gives me great joy. Great joy that I am at a singing church, that you guys love to sing worship to the Lord, and you, you sound beautiful, so I don't know, maybe we can get a bus, we can go on the road, what do you think? Yeah, Trent would love that. Everyone's gone because we're on tour and gets back. No, but I'm, I'm so excited to be able to preach to you today as we continue our series in the Sermon on the Mount as we've been looking at what Jesus demands of his followers, what he has commanded us, how to live and how to follow him. And today is, we're gonna continue this series. It's a command that is a radical one. And for many, it may seem impossible as we look at what it means to love our enemies. And a couple weeks ago, Noelle and I, my wife Noelle, we were able to go on a trip, just me and her. And it's our first trip uh, alone in about eight or nine years, and this is our 15th year of being married, so we said, hey, we're gonna go all out for this. So we went out west, so we went to the Grand Canyon in Arizona, we went to Zion National Park in Utah, Bryce Canyon, and it was just an amazing trip of being able to see grandeur and epicness of God's creation. The things over there are just mind-blowing out west. It's a, it looks a little different than over here where we are in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is beautiful. It is. I'll give you that. Uh, but uh, Arizona, Utah, uh, just mind-blowing scenes. And we went to the Grand Canyon. We went to the North Rim area. And the North Rim is where most tourists go. It's where uh, you see uh, uh, screensavers and pictures, usually with the North Rim. It's photographed. And when you go there, you kind of have two choices of what you want to do. You can either take this trail called the North Rim Trail. It's a seven-mile trail that has a number of viewpoints along it. And you're literally walking along the side of the canyon, like literally right there. If you make a wrong step, you fall in, and that's the end. Uh, or you can take the easier route, which is just to get on this nice air-conditioned bus that you can sit down, you can put your feet up, you can relax and it takes a lot shorter time than the hike. You go to the viewpoint, you hop off, take the picture for the Insta Instagram or whatever, Facebook, get back on the bus, keep going. So when we were deciding what we wanted to do, we knew that we were there for one day and we wanted to take in as much as we could. So we are like, we are doing this hike. And we're not avid hikers. And it was really hot, 95 plus degrees, it's the desert. Noel was scared about stepping on a rattlesnake, which is something that can happen out there. And so as we did this hike, we did not regret it at all. Because the beauty of what we saw, the people on the bus, they really missed out. They really did. Because it was like, as we were walking, it was almost like the canyon was just, well, it really was, it was rotating. But as it rotated, we were able to see different angles of it, different perspectives of the canyon, different colors on the rocks, different rock formations, rivers that we didn't see before. It was like something new, like, oh, look at that, look at that. And when we got to the end, we were tired, we were hot, we were hungry, our feet and our legs hurt. But there was such great reward in taking that, that hike, in taking the more difficult path. And we felt a sense of accomplishment and joy in doing that hike. We didn't regret it at all. And with the Sermon on the Mount, I think it's, it's kind of the same way in life in the sense that we have two choices. We can either take the easy path, the easy path, just embracing comfort and the self not living to any type of standard, doing whatever we wanna do whenever we wanna do it, being whoever 
we want to be, that your truth and my truth is completely subjective to me. Or we can take the route and the path that God has called us to, that Jesus is calling us to and how to live, as we've seen the Sermon on the Mount, the difficult one, the disciplined one, the one of righteousness and holiness, the one of obedience to God. And in that path, we find true reward. We find life. And Jesus admits as much as later on, as we'll see in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter seven, he says, after giving us all these commands, all these examples of how to live, all these teachings. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And this is the beauty, I think part of the beauty of the Christian life of being a follower of Jesus is that though we are embracing a more difficult path to live, we know that it leads to life. We know that it leads to true and lasting joy as we forsake comfort and ease and all the promises that the world, and we know that the, as the world is trying to entice us in our flesh, is trying to entice us to live in an easy way, we know that's a lie. We know it leads to destruction and death. But as we see in his command, we're gonna live a different way and loving our enemies is living a different way than the world's standard. And this command that we're gonna see today, it's more than just a moral thing to do or just to make our life a little harder. But the thing is that when we love our enemies, when we love those that hate us, that seek to harm us, we are imitating and emulating God. We are imitating and emulating his perfect love. He has already loved his enemies as we've seen through the gospel, as we've heard in Romans five that Chris shared at the beginning of worship. God was the one who perfected this because he is perfect love by sending his son Jesus to die for us when we were not his friends, not on his team, not on his side, but his enemies. Our God is filled with patient love, perfect mercy, and free grace. And as his people, we seek to emulate and imitate him in this. And so that is our big idea today. When you love your enemies, you imitate the very character of God. And so let's read here in Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48. These are the words of Christ. These are the words of our Savior. And he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so right off the bat, Jesus is saying to them, 
hey, this is what you've heard. You've heard love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Notice how he doesn't say it is written. Now we know in the Bible there is numerous commands for us to love our neighbor, but nowhere in the Bible is it commanded that we hate our enemy. And so what this shows is that as he's speaking to Israelites on the Sermon on the Mount, where he's speaking to us now, but back then he was speaking to Israelites, he's saying this is something that you just think is common knowledge, is just the normal way to live, right? You love those that are like you, you love those that are your friends, and then those that are against you, you, you hate them. But what Jesus is about to do is take that misconception, he's about to turn it upside down into this radical command. And I think it's important for us that if, before we really dive in, we understand the context of what he means by neighbor and what he means by enemy. Because these words can be kind of uh, defined differently at different times. And so when he says the word neighbor, the Greek word that's used in this instance is, is not someone that's just simply in your vicinity, but it's someone that is your fellow man. It's someone that is your friend. It's someone that is like-minded, that belongs to your group. And so for them, it was other Israelites. I think for us, it would be close family, close friends, other believers in Christ, and then when he says the word enemy, and I think this is really important because this word and the definition has been so cheapened in today's society. The definition of enemy for the world is if you disagree with me on this issue, if you disagree with me about this political thing or that thing, guess what? You're my enemy. If you tell me that I'm living in a, diff in a wrong way, you're not my enemy. That's not what Jesus is saying here. The Greek word that he is used here is ekstros. Ekstros, can you say that with me? Ekstros? good. You guys can sing and speak Greek. I mean, just buttering you up. All right. So what he means here in the, in the word of enemy is it's someone who is openly hostile towards you. They're at enmity with you. They're animated by a deep-seated hatred of you. And there may be irreconcilable hostility. And it could come from a personal bent. It could come from the fact that you are a Christian and you're persecuted for your faith, and they seek to inflict harm upon you. That's what he means by enemy. And so for the Israelites, when they're hearing this, you have to remember that they're under Roman occupation. The Romans are oppressing them financially, physically, in multiple ways, and so their mind is going, wait, we have to love these people that have come into our land and are destroying us? And I understand for us, we may not be able to relate to that in the sense that we don't have this oppressive Roman government over us, but to whatever degree this person, this enemy is in your life, Jesus is calling us to love all of them. And I think we can have enemies on a macro sense, and we can have enemies on a micro sense. And what I mean by that is on the macro sense, is when I think of enemies, I think of those people around the world, those groups of people that hate Christians, that if given the chance, they would murder you for your faith. And it's taking place around the world. And for some Christians, this is a, a real day-to-day -day experience. We are to love those people from afar. And I think in the micro sense of the people that we have come in contact with through our life, whether in the past or in the present or will come in contact with in the future. It could be someone who has slandered you and has tried to harm your reputation by lying about you, perhaps even abused you. We have to all different degrees enemies. But once again, no matter the degree, Jesus is calling you to love them. So I want to look at a couple of reasons why we should love them. 
A couple of reasons to motivate us in this. And I could just say, well, we do it because God has commanded us to do it, and that's fair enough and good enough, but Jesus actually gives us more reasons why. So the first reason why we should love our enemies is to display and live out that we belong to God. In verse 43, he says, you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of, the fa- of your father who is in heaven. And so what we can't be mistaken about here is Jesus is not saying in order for you to be a child of God, in order for you to be saved, to, to receive salvation, the forgiveness of your sins, you simply have to love your enemy. That's not what Jesus is saying here. We know that we're not saved by works, but we are saved by grace. We are saved by trust and belief in Jesus that he is our savior and our Lord and our king. But when we're saved by grace and we believe in Christ and put our trust in Christ, a transformed life is the result. And then from that transformed life is a pursuit and a desire to obey him. And then from that obedience comes godly works that that just follow, that are born out of faith and trust and belief in him. And then when we do godly works, we display that we belong to him. And so I really see it the same way, like kids with their parents, how kids want to emulate their parents. They want to imitate their parents, right, to be like my dad or to be like my mom. And so I remember like one of my sons who every time he'd see me like put hair gel in my hair, he wanted to be like daddy. And so he would go in and he would scoop every millimeter of gel out of the container and then come out with like this gel helmet. You know what I'm, ta- you know what I'm talking about? And it's like you have to hose their head down because it's like cement. And I've really, I've had to spend a lot of money on gel over the years because of this. And I've kind of just given up. I don't even use gel anymore. Um, or, you know, my two-year-old who, you know, he's, he's still in diapers and we help him when he needs to be changed. And, and just the other day, you know, he wants to be helpful like daddy and mommy is. And so I hear my four-year-old screaming from the bathroom, daddy, daddy, daddy. I'm like, what is going on? And usually when kids are screaming from the bathroom, like nothing good is happening. So I walk in there, and my four-year-old's on the toilet, and my two-year-old is holding a wad of toilet paper and a plunger. (laughs) And my four-year-old is saying, he's trying to wipe me. And I'm like, no, 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 why do you have the plunger? I don't know what's going on. But he, he, he wanted to emulate, he wanted to be like me. Or, or when you have you know, you have kids and, and, and people say to you, hey, I can tell that your son is your son, right? The apple don't fall far from the tree. You, you're, the way you, you know, I've had people say to me, like, the way you just said that, like, your mannerism, like, I can tell, like, you're your son's dad. And I'm like, that's a good thing. It is. It's a very good thing. But when people say that about us, when we're loving our enemies, they're saying, you belong to God because you're not loving like the world. It's displaying that you belong to him, that you are his son, that you are his daughter when you imitate his love, the love that he's poured out on his enemies. And that's good. And that's something that we should want to pursue, that we reflect our God, that we follow him in his behavior. And people will see that. We never know the fruit of that, what, what that will be, right? Like, you're different. Have you, like, there's something different about you. You're not like 
the people in the world. You, you have a love in you that I can't explain. That's what we display when we love our enemies. And so we seek to display it, we seek to emulate him. Second reason why we love our enemies is because God extends grace to friend or enemy alike. Verse 44 again, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And so what Jesus is pointing out here is that God gives grace to both the wicked and the righteous, and it's what we call common grace. And he uses rain and the sun as an example because back during those times, it was agriculture was a huge deal. There was a lot of farmers. And if you know anything about farming or gardening, you know that you need the sun and you need the rain in order to produce crops, in order to produce a harvest, to be productive. And so what Jesus is saying is that God is so, he's so gracious He's so patient in his love that even the wicked farmer who curses his name, they receive the blessing of the sun and the rain to produce just as much as the righteous person receives sun and the rain to produce. And we see this in our world today. We see people who don't, are not following Christ that may actually have said disparaging things about God, blasphemous things about God. Yet they are a productive part of society in terms of inventing something, making some new technology, some new application. Or, or perhaps that skilled surgeon that has skills like, like no one else can. And they're productive in life. It's only because of the common grace of God that they are able to do anything productive even though they are against him. And what common grace is not, it's not an approval of bad behavior or wickedness, but rather it proves that God loves the world. God loves his creation. He loves his image bearers. He wishes that none would perish, but that all would receive repentance and life. And it shows that he is perfect in mercy and patience and abounding in love. And so he blesses the wicked. And if we look at that, who are we to say, you know what, we're gonna, we're gonna function in a different way. We're, we're gonna take a different path. We're not gonna show grace to our enemies the way that God shows grace to them. And so once again, we're called to emulate and imitate the Father in this. Third reason why we love our enemies is to receive the prize that Christ promises for us. In Matthew 5, verse 46 through 47, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And so what Jesus is saying here is that you're not going to receive a reward for doing the easy thing. And he uses the tax collectors as an example because back then tax collectors were hated. They were Israelites who had gone and basically went on Team Rome to collect money from the Israelites, and so the Israelites despised them. They saw them as traitors, the lowest of the low. And Jesus is saying here is, hey, you're not gonna get any reward for doing, like, you know those people that you hate? Even they do that. Like, that's the easy thing to do. That's not the narrow path, but the hard path. There's reward for that, the obedience of loving your enemy. In Matthew 5, 11 through 12, we back up a little bit in the Sermon on the Mount, on the Mount 
He says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then in Luke 6, which is the uh, Luke's account of this section, he says in verse 35, but love your enemies, do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the most high. And so Jesus is promising a prize, a reward. Like, do we want, do we want that? And his reward is so much better than anything the world can give. And I think when it comes to loving our enemies or really living anything out from the Sermon on the Mount, there, there, there's temporal rewards and there's heavenly rewards. The temporal rewards when we love our enemies is that what will happen is that Christ's love will fill our hearts to give us the power to even love those that are the most, the, the most difficult to love, those that hate us, that want to harm us or have harmed us, and it will replace hate with love. Like, who, who of us, do you think it's productive or fruitful? Like, if you have bitterness and hate in your heart towards someone, towards anyone, that makes our heart cold. It makes our heart be a hardened heart. But when we love our enemies, we're replacing it with Christ's love. And even in those moments when we are perhaps being persecuted, we will still have peace and hope because we are looking to someone greater. We're looking to Jesus. And then in terms of the heavenly reward that we have, when we love our enemies, we're keeping our eyes off of our temporary situation here and we're looking to the promise of heaven that one day, one day we'll be before the Father and he will say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. And we will be in a place where there's no more tears, no more pain, no more enemies, no more hatred. But when we love our enemies, we're keeping our eyes on that eternal prize that does not rust, that does not fade, that is kept for us in eternity, that is unfading. So we pr pursue the reward that Christ has for us when we obey him. Fourth reason why we love our enemies, to live out what God has done for us through the gospel. Once again, he is the one who has perfected loving your enemies. We love our enemies because God has loved us when we were his enemies. After this whole section, the last thing that, that Jesus closes up, uh, closes up shop on this teaching, he says this, you therefore, love your enemies, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so Jesus is saying that God is love, he is perfect love, he is perfect love personified in the gospel, and as he is perfect in his love, our aim is to be perfect like him, to pursue that same kind of love that was shown to us in the gospel. And here's the thing, we don't love our enemies in order to just try and change them into what we want them to be. We love them because we want to show them that God has changed us and he can do the same thing for them. That he can change their wicked heart. Romans 5, I'm gonna read it again. And we think about who wrote this passage. Apostle Paul, this man was an enemy of God. This man ran around hunting down Christians, killing them, putting them in jail for torture and death. 
And Jesus chose him to write these words that we're reading today, to write whole sections of his word. And now we receive. And you gotta think that as Paul is writing this, that he is writing it from firsthand experience. And now we are reading it as well from firsthand experience for what we've received from God when we were his enemies. And it says, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. The power of that love. The power of the gospel. That God despite our combative position, sent Jesus to go to the cross to take all our sin, all our shame, all our pain. And then when Jesus obeyed the Father and went to the cross, he didn't do it waiting for us to become his friend. He didn't do it when we, waiting for us to change our mind about our position towards him. He died when we were at our lowest point. And then as Jesus is hanging there on the cross, bloodied and beaten and in pain, what is his prayer? As he looks out and his enemies just mocked him, spit all over him, he prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's what he prayed for his enemies. And so now we are taking that. We are taking that love and we are living it out, continuing through his kingdom, living it out. And just doing for others what God has already done for us. We love our enemies because Jesus treated us better than we deserve. And so we treat those that don't deserve to be treated with love and grace with more love and grace. We are the recipients of that radical love. And now it's our calling to give it to others. Those that are the hardest to love. Those that want to harm us, persecute us, hate us. So now we looked at some, some of the why. I want to look at some of the how. How do we love our enemies? Some application points. And the first way that Jesus tells us is to pray for them. Pray for our enemy. In verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for them that they would turn from their wicked ways. That they would cease the harm that they were causing or the abuse that they, they are causing. And I know how difficult this is. I, I can even think back to when I was reading stories about how ISIS was, was just doing the most heinous acts that you could possibly imagine to Christians in the Middle East. I mean, I mean, it was stories that you would read and the hair stood up on the back of your neck and just made, made you so angry. And I remember in those times praying for those Christians to be saved, but then praying that, that, that the terrorists would be destroyed forever, where they would just basically rot in hell. And that's not what Jesus is calling us to pray for our enemies. What he's calling us to pray for our enemies is that they would turn from their ways and receive repentance. That they would find a transformed life in Jesus. That is loving our enemy. They need Jesus just as much as we needed him. 
And so we pray for them. We pray that God would bless them. And when we pray, here's the thing about prayer is that it changes you in that prayer just as much as it can change a situation that you're praying about. When you pray in love for your enemies, it's gonna, again, replace hate and bitterness and the guilt and the condemnation that you're pouring out over them. Replace it with love and grace and trust that God will take care of them in his timing. The second way that we love our enemies is to forgive our enemies. Forgive them no matter what they've done. Luke 6, be merciful even as your father is merciful. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. And so I wanna go through, I can't go through every exception, but this is what I can say in a general sense. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you're allowing someone to not be held accountable for their wicked actions. And so what I mean by that is that if someone has harmed you, and they have broken laws, and they need to be held accountable, it is good and right for you to pursue a legal recourse for them to be held accountable. The justice system and law enforcement and the laws that we have to keep the wicked accountable are a blessing. And when it's appropriate, it is good for us and righteous of us to pursue that. Forgiveness, even with that, forgiveness is you releasing them of your guilt and condemnation that you're putting on them. That once again, you are trusting God, that he is the one that's in his timing. He will take care of them. He will have vengeance, not you. He will have retribution. And there's a story of forgiveness that was incredible. Seven years ago, this month, many of you probably remember this situation, but in Charleston, South Carolina at Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church, there was a group of brothers and sisters in Christ and they were having a Bible study together, praying together, fellowshipping together. And a man walked in that was filled with racist hate and he sat down with them and he talked with them for a bit and then he took a gun out and he murdered nine of those beautiful, innocent saints. And it made national news. And he was caught and arrested and something amazing happened just two days after this heinous act took place. And there was a bond hearing and the judge was there and the judge called up family members of those that had been murdered. And so family member after family member went up to the front looking at this murderer in the eyes through a video screen as he's there shackled behind or in front of two police officers and they did not curse him. They did not say things like, hey, I hope you rot in hell forever. They forgave him. And this is one of the accounts, one of the uh, quotes from one of the family members, Nadine Collier, who she had just lost her mother 48 hours for this point. And she looked at him and she said, I forgive you. You took something really precious from me. I will never talk to her ever again. I will never be able to hold her hand again. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. And then a couple more family members followed and forgave him. And the initial reaction, the reaction, the majority was like just complete confusion. 
people were absolutely perplexed. Why the heck would people forgive this man who had just murdered their family members? This makes no sense. It doesn't make sense because it's a love that does not come from this world. It's a love that comes from our Father. It's a love that comes from heaven. It's a supernatural love that goes through any, any walls, of, uh, every wall of hate and hostility and murder and abuse. It's a love that is greater than any other kind of love. We are called to forgive our enemies. The third way that we love our enemies is to preach the gospel to them. As we pray for them and forgive them, if we have the opportunity, we share that there is a way for them to change the course of their life, to change their direction, to be healed of the wickedness and the hate and the sin that covers them, and to be saved, to be able to repent from their sins. Instead of us cursing them, we share with them the truth of Christ, what Jesus has done for us, he can do for them. Because here's the thing, they may not be able to be reconciled to earthly law, but no matter what they've done, they can be reconciled to God. Second Peter 3, 9, the Lord, he doesn't wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that he wants them to turn from their ways and live. He wants every murderer, every abuser, every, every thief, the absolute worst of humanity, whoever that person is that has been persecuting you in your life, saying lies about you, slandering, about, slandering you, his desire is that they turn. His desire is that they have a restored and redeemed life. And so as that is his desire, that should be our desire as well. And I would say for, for our enemies, this, all of this also applies to, in the sense that our enemies may be other believers, maybe other people in the faith that have harmed us in some way, that are hostile towards us. And all of this applies just the same. We pray, forgive, and we also remind them of who Jesus is, remind them that we're part of the same body, that we're, that we're washed by the same blood, that Jesus has not called his people to be at hostility with one another, but that we are unified under one cross, under one resurrection. And there may be a point where your enemy, even if you preach to them the truth of Christ, they may be so steep in wickedness and evil that they may never choose to follow Christ. And if they don't, once again, God's judgment awaits them. But our, responsi our responsibility and our calling is not to decide when that needs to happen. Our responsibility and our calling is to love them by sharing with them what Jesus has done for us, by praying for them, by forgiving them. We never know who's gonna hear, respond, and receive. It could be our worst enemy. So I wanna, I wanna close this way. I know that this is, this is a heavy command this is one that is not easy. And some of you may be thinking right now, I can't do this. Like, I, you don't understand what this person has done to me. You don't understand how they have abused me or harmed me or cursed me or, or lied about me. 
you don't get it. Like there's no way that I can love them. There's no way that I can forgive them for what they've done or pray for them. And, and here's the truth of it. You can't do it. You can't do it on your own. Jesus' promise is that he will be with you in this. He doesn't just give us these commands and, and give us this model for how to live and then says, figure it out on your own. He's given us his Holy Spirit. He's given us his very power to be able to do the hardest things in the hardest of circumstances. And an example of this, a real life example of this is, is from Corey Ten Boom. Many of you maybe know who she is, but she was a, a young lady who grew up in the 30s and the, the 40s and during World War II. She was from the Netherlands and uh, she was with her father and her sister during this time during World War II and she saw the injustice that was taking place as during a time the Nazis were running around trying to capture Jewish families to take them to concentration camps to murder them. And she, her and her family saw what was going on and they hated it and they wanted to do something about it to help those that were vulnerable. So they built a secret room in their house and they housed Jewish families and then she they would try to shuttle them out to other countries where they could be free from Nazi oppression and captivity. And it said that her and her family saved over 800 Jewish individual, individuals from Nazi captivity. And then in 1944, her and her family were caught. And her, her father, and her sister were taken to prison. And her father died there. And then she was transported with her sister to Ravensbrück concentration camp, where she saw some of the worst things a human can do to another human. She saw genocide and murder and abuse just wicked acts. And her sister died there. And then God in his goodness rescued her from that place. There was a clerical error and she was accidentally released. And after she left, she was picking up the pieces of her life. World War II had ended. She went around to different churches in Europe and would share her story. She would share the gospel. And there was one situation that happened in a church in Munich where she was faced with what would seem like an impossible task, but something amazing happened. And this is what she writes of the account in her autobiography, The Hiding Place. She says, it was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, a former SS man, which is a Nazi officer, who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time, and suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face, which Betsy was her sister. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fräulein, he said. To think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who had preached so often to the people in Blumendahl, the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I gonna ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile, I struggled to raise my hand, I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I prayed, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. 
From my shoulder along my arm and through my hand a current seemed to pass from me to him while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with the command the love itself. And so this is what Corey learned in that moment. She learned that Christ will not leave you alone in the battle. That when the time comes and you're faced with an impossible situation like this, Christ will not leave you alone. That he will give you his love, which is his power. And from that power, you are able to do the impossible because his love, it specializes in helping you love people that you have no reason to love. The same love that moved Christ to die on the cross for his enemies is in you. It's part of your very fiber and your very being if you belong to him. The love of Christ that is unexplainable, amazing and all powerful, what it does is it multiplies his love in you so that you can love your enemies. So trust in him to do the work that you cannot do on your own. And as he empowers you to do so, you imitate and emulate the very heart of God, the very character of God. And you show others the love that was shown to you on the cross when Jesus died for his enemies. It's a love that could never come from this world. It's only found in him. Let's pray. Jesus, we are faced apart from you with an impossible task to love those that would seek to harm us, that hate us, that lie about us. We can't do it on our own. We need your power, and so we ask that in those times, that in those moments, that you, that your love would rush into our hearts and would give us supernatural power to love those that are so difficult to love in the same way that you have loved us. We pray that we would do this to imitate who you are, to emulate who you are. But more importantly, and most importantly, to glorify you in an act of worship to you, that we are living out the gospel. And we thank you for the deep, deep love that you've shown us. That when we were your enemies, you authored and executed the plan of salvation. And now we can stand here redeemed and reconciled. We pray now as we sing of this truth that it would once again affect our hearts and our minds in a new and fresh way. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.